0: Hello, and thank you for joining me on another episode of the Business Advantage podcast. I am Alicia M. Pennington, owner of Advantage, mama, business consultant, and your host. I started this podcast back in 2016 to bring awareness to business-related topics in athletic training. And now here we are seven years later on season four, discussing the transition from self-employment to business ownership. Let's dive in. Are you a self-motivated athletic trainer looking to take control of your work? Advantage is seeking relationships with athletic trainers who want autonomy, flexibility in their schedule, and who thrive in non-traditional contract opportunities. If this sounds like you, get in touch. Key learning objectives. Recognize the legal components of running a business. Distinguish between best practices and necessary legal implementations for a business. Create a task list for compliance with upfront, semi-regular, and ongoing tasks in business ownership. As we now know, one of the distinct benefits of starting a business is the separation of an entity and the ability to mitigate risk associated with it. However, (laughs) you won't actually reap these full benefits if you're not tending to the legal aspects of the business. And so simply having a separate entity, it is a start, but failing to put contracts in place, set up the accounting aspect of the business, and look at or consider trademarking or purchasing insurance, all of those things, they will leave you incredibly exposed. So in today's episode, we're going to go over all of that and we're going to discuss what the brand new business owner needs to do and what you should consider. I don't want you to feel intimidated by this. I feel like the word legalities has sort of this weight associated with it of this kind of daunting, looming thing and potentially even the, oh, this is why I didn't want to start a business, right? All of the legal aspects of it. And so... Though this information will obviously be new for you, it is very straightforward. And like I mentioned in a previous, in our previous episode, we do have a course that walks you through all of this. So if your head is like totally spinning after listening to this, we definitely have something that is there to provide you greater support. The other thing here is as we're kind of diving into this, I just want you to know that going back to your why, so the thing that we discussed in the previous episode, is probably going to be important, right? So when I talked about things might get hard or you're going to actually have to have some motivation to get through this, this is what I'm talking about, right? The very next episode where we're talking about legalities, that cringy word that none of us want to deal with and we all just kind of want to ignore, Boom, we're right here, okay? So if you need to, press pause, go back, remind yourself of what is your why, and I am hopeful that it will give you the enduring power to get through today's episode. I promise to make it as lively and as straightforward as possible, but these absolutely are things that you need to know about and that I would be negligent to not inform you of, okay? Let's dive into it. So there is a phrase called piercing the corporate veil. And what this means is basically that a business owner is held personally responsible for the debts or the misconduct of an LLC, of a completely separate entity, okay? So essentially what this means is that a court could decide to, quote unquote, lift the veil of protection that an LLC is afforded, thereby holding its owners personally be personally responsible for debts, okay? So before you start thinking, Alicia, everything that you have told me is that I wouldn't be held personally responsible, that the whole point of starting an LLC is so that I don't have to worry about all of this. All of that is still true. I promise I didn't lie to you. I promise you didn't waste your time up to this point. But as we're going to discuss today, those will only be true if you actually conduct yourself legally, okay? So this would happen, you being held personally responsible, this would happen for kind of a few primary reasons. And that's why I'm talking to you about this today, because I want you to be fully informed about this before you go into the business ownership aspect, okay? So the one that you should be most concerned about when we discuss piercing the corporate veil is when a business essentially only holds the title of a company, but it does not conduct itself in such a way as being a company. Meaning, if a business owner fails to maintain a formal legal separation between their personal and their business affairs, the court could determine that it's basically just a front, that you're just attempting to take advantage of the benefits while not maintaining the professional responsibilities associated with it. Now, I know none of you would do that. but it is, it can be easy for some of these things to fall through the crack. And this is typically something that only happens when you're like grossly negligent. It wouldn't just be, I forgot to do one thing or the other, but you know, it's important that if you're going to pursue business ownership, that you undertake even just the minimal legal responsibilities to maintain its status and your entity separation, Okay, so I will list these out for you today. Some are just for you to consider and kind of I guess identified as like best practices, while others are like actual steps that you that need to be taken to ensure that you're staying on the legal side of business ownership. I want to try to make this as like relatable to athletic training as possible and so I have found a bunch of analogies here that I am hopeful will make what I am explaining in the business world translate directly to what we experience in the athletic training in the sports medicine world. So just like when we're working as healthcare professionals, there's a code of ethics, there's a scope of practice, there's state licensure, we have a board of certification that all Kind of help us dictate what we can and what we can't do, the bounds that we need to stay within, the ways that we need to report, the measures that we need to go through in order to remain practicing. Business ownership kind of operates in the same capacity. So I just want you to know that, like, this does become easier over time to understand. The hardest part is learning the rules, right? So even when we were brand new students like we didn't understand code of ethics and scope of practice and state licensure and board of certification like who does what where is the nata and all this do they have like right so it's very easy when you're first getting started to kind of feel overwhelmed with the different terms who is responsible for what where do i report what where what am i obligated to what do i have to do versus what is just kind of best practices to do so It it, like I said, it becomes easier over time. First, we have to learn the rules. But then operating within them kind of becomes really straightforward once we understand the parameters. So we kind of just have to adjust our behaviors as business owners to implement these changes kind of into our ongoing habits, and then they become second nature. The same way that operating within our scope of practice as an athletic trainer is just second nature. We don't have to actively restrain ourselves from staying within our scope of practice, right? So as easy as it is kind of for any of us to very quickly identify like what is outside of our scope of practice, you will kind of become attuned to what this looks like for business ownership as well, right? So we're already used to conducting ourselves as professionals We simply now need to train ourselves to understand how to conduct ourselves as business owners. And like I said, it takes time. The same way that it took time as an athletic trainer, I don't expect you guys to be, you know, whizzes at this after listening to a single episode. And like with anything else, the more practice we have in it and the different ways that we engage in these behaviors in our own life, they help to inform how we utilize them. So these will kind of be micro tasks that we discuss that kind of occur either in your day or in your week or in a month or a quarter or a year. Some of them are more ongoing than others, but it's it's kind of, you know, similar to documenting, right? So it's not going to like completely overtake the bulk of what your business is doing, but they are small tasks that need to either be done up front they need to be done semi regularly or they need to be done on an ongoing basis so i'm going to list these things for you and it may sound like my gosh like when am i even going to have time to like deliver patient care when am i when am i even going to be able to like actually do the thing that i want to start this business for but i want you to think about these things that i'm going to describe kind of as documentation okay so they either need to be done after a visit or at the end of a week or they need to be audited on kind of a monthly or quarterly basis, maybe it needs to be set up on the front end. But it and it is something that obviously has to get done. But it's not so much of a workload that you're completely removing yourself from all of the other things that you get to do in your business. Okay, so we're starting to dive significantly deeper Into what business ownership looks like. And as we do that, the further and further away that we're getting from traditional athletic training education, as I've alluded to for several episodes now. So naturally, none of this is taught in our education programs. And it's probably not anything that you would be able to come across while practicing clinically. It probably isn't even really stuff that you could Google, honestly. This that I've put together is a compilation of my 10 years in entrepreneurship, my four to six years in consulting other business owners. This list is something that has kind of been aggregated over time. And like I've mentioned previously, there are very few athletic trainers who are in a position to provide consultation at this level of detail, right? So, and i'm i'm talking at or non-at owned business because i am an athletic trainer i very much understand the intimacies of you know going into private practice and rendering patient care that way but i also am a staffing company owner which is not a athletic training specific business right so i already ventured out into a different industry from the onset But starting in 2016, when my husband and I were doing mentorship and consulting of other business owners, we've done, I think it's like 35 plus industries now, you know, everything from photography to floral and personal training and, oh my gosh, the list goes on and on and on, beauty aesthetics and a YouTuber and an influencer, like it goes on and on, right? So for that reason, because we don't get this exposure in school, because there's not really a lot of athletic trainers practicing in a way that can provide this kind of consultation this continuing education is a lifeline honestly it's it is a support for the entrepreneurial athletic trainer as i've said again and again and again to be able to remain in a profession that they love right to continue serving while finding a career path that allows them for their passions to flourish and like I've continually and will continue to say. And of course, we hope that that leads to lower attrition rates and a greater number of athletic trainers staying in the profession. Okay, so let's dive into it. We're going to cover a number of topics that fall under the category of legalities. I want you to know that I'm going to touch on the surface of these, okay? If you need further support or a specific recommendation, or you're in a specific situation, I have a course that covers all of this in extensive detail. You're also welcome to DM me anytime. I'm happy to answer your questions. So don't want your head to spin. I want you to listen. I want you to listen and get excited about all of the things that you get to do. And the moment that you start to feel overwhelmed, just remember your why. Okay, here we go. So we're starting with the tasks that should be considered and completed at the onset of your business, right? And then we're going to progress through semi-regular and then ongoing tasks. So first thing here, E-I-N, okay? So once you have a name that you've decided on for your business, we covered all of that in the previous episode. If you need information there, please go back. You're going to want to get an E-I-N, Okay, an EIN stands for Employer Identification Number. This number basically operates as the social security number for your business so that you don't have to share your personal information, okay? So if you decide to pursue a DBA, technically, you don't have to get an EIN, but it is required for an llc okay in either case it is my recommendation that you get one it is completely free it is a simple application it you get it immediately it's emailed to you as a pdf this is done through the irs website i will link everything in the show notes on where to go to do this and so essentially what you're doing here is you're getting a number that you can use when you're conducting yourself under business, regardless of whether it's DBA or LLC, but you have to have this number if it's an LLC that protects your personal information. We know how easy it is to have our social security numbers stolen, our personal information we want to keep private. So go get an EIN, okay? you will use this number on your LLC filing documents and for all subsequent applications that you will complete related to getting a business, such as for a bank account, or once you start rendering work and you're submitting a W-9, instead of putting your social security number on these documents, you now will use the EIN, okay? This also helps demonstrate that you are separating Yourself as a person from business assets. Okay, so boom, I just gave you the first way. It is completely free. It is delivered to you immediately. It's simple and straightforward to get completed. It protects all of your personal identity. And this is the first way that you can start to demonstrate you are separating yourself as a person from the business. There you go. Okay, next one. A registered agent. So when you are establishing your LLC, one of the questions that they're going to ask you about is a registered agent, okay? A registered agent is an individual or an entity designated by an active company to receive services, service of process notices, government correspondence, and compliance-related documents on behalf of the company. Okay, what does that even mean? (laughs) So when you file an LLC, when you become a business owner, you are required to identify someone that is responsible and available to accept formal documentation and correspondence with the state, with the government, whoever it is, okay? You have to identify this person when you're setting up the business. And so When you're setting up the business, you have two options for the registered agent. You can list yourself as the registered agent, or you can list someone else. You can pay to have an entity be this person for you. Let me give you my recommendation here. So in basically every case, it is always our recommendation to pay someone else to be your registered agent. And here's why. The personal information of this entity will be listed as public record on the Secretary of State website and all other search engines. So remember in the last episode when I said, go to your Secretary of State website, look up the business name, see if it's available. If any businesses popped up when you did that, you could have clicked on it and there is a physical address that is associated with that business. People who do not pay to have a registered agent often list themselves as the registered agent, which means when you looked up that business, you had that person's home address. Okay. That's a little scary. <laughs> Most business owners that we work with, they're starting their business from home. You're not you know, going to be renting an office space or anything And so we don't recommend making your personal home address public record. Similar thing with the EIN, like don't use your social security number, don't make your home address public record. In the case of a registered agent, you cannot list a PO box. So that option is completely out. There's also these things called virtual mailboxes. We've looked into it. It's basically the same cost as having a registered agent. My husband and I started a consulting firm for aspiring and established business owners who are looking to start, scale, or shift their businesses. We've worked with everyone from independent athletic trainers to multi-million dollar corporations. We've translated our foundational principles across 35 plus industries and would love to support you as well. Head to penningtonperspective.com for more info Or feel free to just DM me directly on IG at It's Alicia MP. That's I-T-S-A-L-I-S-H-A-M-P. See you there. So let me tell you why we actually recommend getting the registered agent. So the second reason why we recommend paying someone else to be this for you is that they're responsible for collecting all formal government correspondence, okay? So when our business mail is also coming to our home address, or it's going to some quote-unquote virtual mailbox or P.O. box, whatever, it's really easy for it to get lost, for it to be overlooked, or potentially even discarded. And it's usually something that like, it has to be addressed. Like if they're sending us official correspondence, it's there's an action that we have to take. So when you're paying a registered agent, it's their responsibility to get any of that mail to you, which is typically via email. And they also take care of the correspondence for you. So let me give you an example of this. I currently have an email in my inbox from our registered agent informing me that they pay our annual state filing fee, okay? So this is something that, a state filing fee is something that you usually have to pay every single year. And it's one of the things that our registered agent just takes care of for us. So if I didn't have a registered agent, this is something that I probably would have received a paper notice for, or I don't know, maybe several paper, paper notices. I would have had to go to the website Type in, you know, whatever it says on the paper that I have to do, and I would have had to pay for it. I know that that doesn't seem arduous, but multiply that now by, you know, I'm only on the second thing here that I'm telling you to do. When you when you get into business ownership, there's a lot of things that need to be filed, for example, like on a quarterly or an annual basis, and so they can start to add up, right? So. I know that like it, it kind of seems simple, like Alicia, it's not that big of a deal to just like open a piece of mail, walk to your computer and pay for it. But how many of us forget to do that, right? Or we set it down, it gets lost under a pile of papers it ends up in the trash. All of a sudden we've got a penalty or a fee and you know, it was just completely inadvertent that we didn't mean to do it. So the registered agent, we pay $50 a year. It's incredibly affordable and they operate in this capacity for us. So it is more than worth it, right? They have a physical address that is not listed as ours. There was someone physically responsible for collecting that correspondence and getting it to me. And they take care of little administrative tasks like filing our state fee. For 50 to 100 bucks a year, it's completely worth it for us. So this is another step that you can take. That helps demonstrate that you're separating your business from your personal, especially if you're going to be operating the business out of your home. This is yet another thing that on paper you can use to demonstrate, hey, 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 you know, I'm doing what is right. I I have a, a registered agent set up. I pay for them. They take or They take care of all my formal business correspondence. Another way to separate ourselves, business from personal. Okay, next one, business permits and licenses. So after we inform the state that you're going to be doing business there, so that's via the DBA or the LLC, you will need to secure a city or county business permit license that kind of call them something a little bit different each place that you go. So even if you're working out of your house or you're just conducting business online, be sure to check your city or county to grab these. They're, again, usually pretty inexpensive. In my experience, they've been kind of like less than $100 a year. But again, it is something, another piece of paperwork that you have to do, another kind of search that you have to endeavor down and apply yourself for. So definitely make sure that you're doing that because you technically cannot operate your business if you don't have a permit or license. Next one here, trademarks. Okay, so when we're establishing our business, and technically you can also do this at any point in your business, the topic of trademarking the name will probably come up. So in the previous episode, I shared about how to search for your desired business name on the USPTO website. You need to ensure that you're not infringing on someone else's trademark. Go back and listen to my cease and desist story to hear more about that. But once you've confirmed that, you have the option of filing for your own trademark. Okay? So... Step one is just making sure that you're not infringing on someone else's. Step two would be applying for and getting your own, okay? You can also do this on the state level. There is such thing as a state trademark. However, just establishing your business in the state inherently protects the name. You don't need to file a trademark. If there is a logo or some type of symbol that you're using associated with your business, You can file that on the state trademark website. I would say, historically, we have not made the recommendation to file a state trademark as when you're just conducting yourself as a business. Because as you've already experienced, when you went to go do business under a name and you searched it, if that name was already taken, you then did not pursue that business name. So it's already kind of inherently protected in that way. Okay, so nothing, nothing really to, to be concerned about there. Most businesses do not file a trademark at the onset of starting, okay? So I would say majority of businesses, so we've mentored probably, I don't know, close to 100, if not more other people that have been businesses, business ownership, I can count on one hand how many of them have either submitted trademarks or currently carry trademarks, okay? Our recommendation is that if you do this, if you pursue a trademark, that you wait to do it until once you're a few years into business that you actually love your business name the business is growing there's viability there's a lot of success associated with it and at that point if you want to protect it because the brand is expanding that would be when we recommend it the reason i say that so we had one gal who went through our startup incubator course and the very first thing she did was get a trademark And we had concerns, but she felt, you know, pretty vehement about getting, getting this thing trademarked. And probably, let's say 14 to 16 months into her business, she realized, I don't really love this brand. Like the name doesn't really fit me. I really liked it when I first started. But, you know, as I've started working with people, as I've started doing more of this work it doesn't really fit anymore. And I kind of want to like tweak it. She just adjusted it a little bit. But that adjustment nullified her previous trademark. So that was, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of dollars down the drain for her. And we we see this a lot, you know, just over time, th- names change, the way that we identify kind of changes, our work evolves. And so I'm sure that there will be attorneys who make the recommendation that you shouldn't even get a single piece of marketing collateral printed without getting a trademark because the marketing collateral is a waste of money if your brand isn't protected. But again, after 11 years of entrepreneurship, mentoring over 100 business owners, I can tell you that trademark is something that you want to verify that you're not infringing on, but doesn't have to be pursued for your own brand. So yeah, I'm just trying to save you some money in the startup phase of things. (laughs) And I actually found a statistic. So according to a 2020 statistic, trademark applications for business services make up less than 10% of all applications with research and technology, health, and then clothing and accessories being far more dominant. So if you're not in the research and technology sector, if you're not in the health sector, think like, you know, big pharma, who is trying to secure names of different devices and drugs and things that are coming on the market. That is mass majority of the trademark applications come from. And then clothing and accessories, Right. So again, think about, you know, Kylie and, you know, the whole Kardashian crew. I feel like I see all the time their trademark applications that are going through or all the different fashion houses and and all of that. They're the ones majorly who are making up trademark applications. So your business probably doesn't need one. Next one here is a business bank account and accounting software. So Once you set up your business, DBA or LLC, the next step to separating your personal and business affairs is to set up a business bank account, okay? This is recommended regardless of entity status because a lot of people will skip this step and it is a huge legal aspect. There's a lot of legal implication with combining the monies, of your business and your personal accounts, okay? So it is paramount that you heed my advice on this one. This is one that that it needs to be done. And it, it, it goes beyond just best practices. I will say that there are tons of people out there who are operating their businesses from their personal bank accounts, okay? And it is scary at best and legally damaging at worst. Okay. So please take it from me. Separate your business bank account, separate your bank accounts, open a business bank account. Okay. This can be done almost exclusively online. You don't even really have to go into a branch anymore. You will need an EIN in order to do this. Okay. So if going back, you're a DBA and you chose not to get an EIN, in order to open a business bank account, you will need an EIN to do that. And if you open an LLC, you'll need information from your secretary of state filings in order to do that. But otherwise, basically within a few days, you can be completely set up. You can have an entirely separate business bank account. You can have it at the same bank that you run your normal finances through. So I'm not saying that you have to go to an entirely other bank, that you have to establish yourself with someone completely else. Go to the same bank that you do all of your other banking with, open a business bank account and start separating your finances, okay? Make sure that you are selecting a business checking product, that you're not just opening a separate personal checking account, okay, that's not the same thing. You're welcome to shop around. You know, if you want to go to a credit union, if you want to go to a bank that has lower minimum balances or fees, you're welcome to do that. We have found that opening an account at the same institution that your personal accounts are held is usually the easiest because you're already established with them. They're already familiar with you. And it just from a habits perspective is way easier to continue banking with the same institution. So get that set up for yourself. And then after you set up this bank account, you then need to account, you need to connect it to an accounting software, okay? Again, this is a legal requirement. I'm not just making best practice recommendations here. This is something that you absolutely should be doing, okay? You're technically required to reconcile your accounts and provide a profit and loss and balance sheet for tax purposes every single year. Okay. So if you're trying to run this on a spreadsheet, if you're attempting to keep your business and your personal combined and just keep some running listed document of how you spent money, it's not legit. Okay. This is a perfect way to demonstrate that you're mixing business and personal. Keep everything separate. We recommend QuickBooks. It's basically the industry standard. It's really straightforward. It's quite affordable. I think that the Essentials package is about $15 a month. Run yourself through a few of the quick tutorials on how to do it. Basically, all you have to do is connect your business bank account to the accounting software. It automatically pulls in all of the transactions for you you then are required to log those transactions and you know you can get messed up there. So if you want to use a bookkeeper, you can, but it's not required. But at minimum, open a business bank account, connect it to an accounting software that is highly recommended if not required. Okay. Last two pieces here. The first one is contracts and lawyers. Okay. So when you're ready to start conducting business, whether that's, you know, selling products from a Shopify website or you're rendering healthcare services, you're going to need terms of use, agreements, you're going to need contracts, okay? So any kind of website that you're operating will require a terms of use and a privacy policy. And any level of service that is being rendered needs some type of more formal agreement that is outlining the responsibilities of the parties, the consent to treat and other details. Okay. So some of these contracts are pretty easy to grab. There are templates online. And then others are really specific and may require a lawyer in order to either draft them or revise them. Technically, these are not required to do business. The terms of use and the privacy policy on a website is, tech, is a legal requirement, but a lot of places that you do a, a website through, Wix, WordPress, Squarespace, Shopify, all of those, they're going to have them inherently, they're going to be built in. So you're not technically required to have a contract, but it is strongly recommended in order to protect yourself legally. And, you know, will absolutely help support the separation of personal and business operations by demonstrating that you're conducting yourself in a professional manner and having separate agreements. So we do have several sample agreements. If you're going to be rendering athletic training services, we do have many of those available on the Advantage website that we sell. You can just buy those. If you're in a completely different industry and you're going to be rendering services, look look up templates online. I know LegalZoom has a bunch too. So check that out. Okay. Last piece here, taxes. Okay. (laughs) The one that we all hate, right? So just like in our personal lives, the one thing that we cannot get away from as business owners either are taxes. So these will look a little bit different for your business because its finances need to be detailed separately and differently from your personal ones. So kind of as I've previously mentioned, you'll be required to produce a profit and loss, which is also referred to as a P and L. You also will be required to produce a balance sheet at the end of each year. That's why we tell you to open a business bank account. That's why we tell you to connect it to an accounting software, because at the end of the year, you're going to be required to produce those. And if you didn't do that, you're gonna to have to find some other way to produce them with your spreadsheet or with this, you know, box of receipts or whatever it is that you chose to use. We've seen it too many times from people. It's a mess. Don't even don't even get yourself into it, okay? So for both DBAs and LLCs, they are considered what's called pass through entities, which means that all of the income that you made from your business will pass through, to your personal income. Okay. So really what this means is, you know, okay, so filing business taxes, business taxes is a legal requirement. And you're probably going to want a tax professional to help do this for you, though, that's not technically required, it is possible to do this with an online software. But really what it means is that under your business, just as if just kind of like as if the way that you file your own taxes, right? So you go, you collect all your paperwork and you kind of sit down and you put it all in, you know, whether it's a software that you're using or a spreadsheet, whatever it is that you use to file your taxes, you're going to sit down, you're going to do all of that, okay? You have to do that for a business as well. So it's going to, the papers are going to look a little bit different. The numbers on them are going to be a little bit different. All of that's going to be done. Whatever the the total sum at the end that then passes through to you as in as a person. I explain this in way more detail in our course, so if you need a better understanding, I'd suggest going through there or just kind of googling "pass through entity" and better understanding it. There, I didn't want to get too deep into it in this episode because I can it can get kind of wiry. So, kind of transitioning away to from the nitty gritty, I, I wanted to bring up. I'm sure. As you're thinking about this, it's just sort of maybe head spinning a little bit of like, wow, that's kind of a lot. I don't know if I was ready for that. And again, a lot of these things are, like I said at the beginning, for you to consider, for you to start thinking about, for you to start chewing on. The same way that a lot of this for us as practicing athletic trainers was very new and felt daunting and like a lot to manage on an ongoing basis I promise that this is not the case, right? Like I said at the at the onset it's like documentation. I know it sounds like wow, there is a lot to do administratively just to run a business. It makes up such a small percentage of everything that you do in being able to render services that I don't want it to overwhelm you. But I do want to share that there is conversation in the in the business world about decreasing regulation and barriers that are associated with business ownership. And especially as a result of the pandemic and in an effort to make kind of like the pursuit of entrepreneurship and business ownership accessible for as many people as possible. Because like I said, these recommendations I gave you, those come on the heels of over 10 years of experience and, and mentoring 100 plus people, right? So if you were just somebody that had no mentorship, no consultation on this, you would just be like wandering through wilderness, right? So there there was a report that was published by the Cato Institute, CATO, which is a a popular think tank. And it's kind of a, a public policy research entity. And they basically argue that state and local governments should slash regulatory barriers for startup businesses. For example, simplifying like the permitting or licensing processes or liberalizing some of the zoning for home businesses. So while, you know, this is not like, it's kind of regulatory hearsay, like the thing to be mindful of in starting your business is that it's important to understand that You know, just as the regulations in athletic training could change from state to state or they could shift over time, it's similar in the business world. And this is why it's, it's helpful to surround yourself with mentors or experts in the field, just like we do in athletic training, right? We're not meant to know everything. And it's okay to just want to work in your business and only pay attention to this stuff on occasion that is perfectly acceptable and normal. And that's how most people feel. So just be sure that if you make that decision that you have someone else who's kind of keeping a pulse on things, you subscribe to a newsletter or something so that you're staying in the know. But again, like I said at the beginning, I don't want you to feel overwhelmed or inundated by this information because it's really me exposing it to you and you being able to determine based on what is shared here, what is best for you. And so kind of in conclusion here, you know, there are, there's implications associated with not running your business in legal ways. They can be fines or penalties, there could be potential lawsuits. And even the reality of like your business having to close. And obviously, none of that is worth exposing ourselves to. That's not why we're starting a business. It's not why we're venturing into this at all. So recognizing the legal components of running a business, distinguishing between best practices and necessary legal implementations for your business, and creating a task list for which for compliance with upfront semi-regular or ongoing tasks in business ownership will ensure that you don't find yourself piercing the corporate veil. So whether regulation is going to increase or decrease over time, we don't know. But the implications of your ability to continue working as a practitioner and serving your patients are reliant on sound legal practices. Thank you for listening. You are now eligible to receive a Category A CEU. Head to advantageacademy.com. Find the title of this podcast as a course name and complete the quiz for your credit. As always, if you found this useful, please recommend it to peers or share about it on social media. Be sure to tag us at The Advantage. That's T-H-E-A-T-V-A-N-T-A-G-E.